0: Welcome to the Food Issues Podcast. I'm your host, Julie Revelant, and I'm a journalist, healthcare copywriter, and a mom of two. In every episode, we talk about the challenges around feeding kids and give you practical and realistic solutions that will inspire and empower you to raise healthy eaters. Hi, friends. Welcome to another week of the podcast. So picky eating is one of the most common challenges we have as parents, and it is super frustrating. But when you look for solutions online, a lot are focused around recipes and sneaking vegetables and new
1: meal ideas.
0: And although those ideas can certainly help, it's important to first figure out what is causing the picky eating in the first place.
1: What I want parents to hear most is that it's all fixable. Like, even the most severe picky eaters can learn to eat.
0: That's Katie Kimball, founder of KitchenStewardship.com and the Kids Cook Real Food eCourse. Katie says food and eating are two different things and that kids can be labeled as picky eaters when there's actually something else going on. She also talks about what she calls the five P's of picky eating and how to figure out why your kid won't eat certain foods or eat enough and how to encourage your kids to be healthy eaters. There's so much information in this episode and advice that you can put into practice today. And I know you're going to love this interview with Katie Kimball.
1: Katie, welcome to Food Issues. Thank you so much, Julie. It's always a pleasure.
0: Yes, I am so excited to have you back. You were on season one and we were talking about cooking with kids through COVID. It feels like such a long time ago, although, you know, it seems like we're we're heading towards the end of this, hopefully. And so today, you know, I'm so excited to talk to you about picky eaters and kind of where we go wrong with recipes. But let's for people who don't know you, although you're quite popular in the, in the health space, let's talk about your story and how you came to uh, found Kids Cook Real Food.
1: Well, that was pretty generous. I was never a popular kid in high school, so we'll just, <laughs> we'll just pretend. We'll pretend that what you said was perfectly accurate. <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I'm just a mom. I'm a mom of four, and I'm one of those kids who always knew she wanted to be a teacher, and that's what I became. And then I only taught third grade for two years before I became a mom, which I also always knew uh, that I wanted to be. And as a perfectionist, I knew that I couldn't do both at the same time. Well, that I would compromise everywhere all day long. Um, so it was it was just a given that I had to stop teaching full time and come home. And we were pretty young. And when I ran the family budget, the bottom line was red. <laughs> That's not the right color. So. You know, I I actually started my online life from a place of, well, I better figure out how to make a few thousand dollars for the family this year. Like, do I sell Pampered Chef? I actually thought I would write a book. And it's hilarious looking back because a book is neither a quick nor effective way to actually add to a family bottom line (laughs) in a budget, right? Like that was totally the wrong direction. But I ended up emailing an editor of a magazine, a real small magazine that I read. And I don't know why I did that. How I thought an editor would have time to answer my question of like, how do I write a book? (laughs) I was so young and naive. It's hilarious. But he, he actually answered and said, why don't you start a blog to see if there's a market for your idea? So at the time I had just been learning how to feed my family. You know, I had really come from a hamburger helper bagged salad, college career, you know, learning how to cook. Slash not cook, you know, right. Like that's not really cooking. But when I had my first baby, it was just so important to me to nourish him well. And it felt like a massive weight of responsibility. So as I was learning, I I knew that other moms in my circles were failing at the same things I was failing at. And so my teacher heart just kicked in and I thought, I want to, I want to help. I want to teach people. I want to help, you know, smooth the road for other moms for whom budget is short and time is short, but nutrition is important. So that's how I got started uh, working online, teaching at Kitchen Stewardship, and just fell in love with the online community and kind of the immediate feedback of that. Within six months, I never wanted to write a book. But I did then end up shifting uh, about six years ago to teaching kids to cook because I saw that need in my community, that so many moms in our generation, Julie, were not taught to cook, right? And so we're coming from this place of, gosh, you know, they would say to me, Katie, I really want to be healthy, but it's so hard because I don't even know the first thing about cooking. And, and I could just see that that would become a cycle for our kids, right? If we don't know how to cook, we're not teaching them. And I really wanted to step in and, and break that cycle and make it really easy for moms and dads, even with no experience in the kitchen to get their kids confident in the, in the kitchen so that they can take ownership of their health.
0: Great. So studies show that about 50% of kids are what we call picky eaters, but so much of the solutions for parents out there, when we look to for help on on digital outlets, digital channels, we see recipes, fun ways to turn food into art projects, meal ideas, so many different solutions. But you say that food and eating are actually two different things. So please explain that.
1: Yeah, I, I like to surprise people, right? I think the element of surprise is really important. And so when to tell parents, hey, guys, all right, food and eating, two totally separate issues, that's a bit mind expanding, and which is absolutely my goal. And so, and so the thing is like, yes, sure. Sometimes changing the presentation of the food makes a difference, right? How, how should I prepare this cauliflower or can I make a, you know, Olaf snowman out of my vegetables and get our kids to eat it? Sure. Sometimes that does make a difference, but that's partly because we eat with all of our senses, including our visual sense. In fact, fun fact, visual learners actually tend to be more likely to be picky eaters. If they're a visual learner in the classroom, because they look at the food and they decide they don't like it, right? They refuse to try based on that visual input. But one good example, I think, of showing that food is a separate issue from eating is those kids who sort of have um, a stress response or a fear of food. So some kids maybe uh, get tummy aches from stress, or they're they're constantly kind of in fight or flight. They might've had a past trauma like gagging or choking or being forced to eat. And so for these kids, they're, they are coming to the table, absolutely not ready to approach food. It would not matter what food is on the table. It certainly doesn't matter if it's cute because they're having a physiological and or emotional response to just the act of eating. Right, they're not ready to eat. So it literally doesn't matter what the food is; it's going to be a complete block in their system for them to be able to eat. Whilst, but but you would look at that child as a parent, and you would think, ah, they're such a picky eater. They're always pokey. They're you know they're pushing their food around their plate. They're crying at the table. They're struggling. Right, and we think it has to do with the food, but really it just has to do with the act of eating and the fact that their body and their brain can't approach the table right now and eat. doesn't matter what the food is. So that's, I mean, that's just kind of one example to show, yeah, they really are separate actions.
0: I think this is just so valuable. And so you've done your research and you were trained in what's called the SOS feeding approach to feeding. And so what
1: is that? And what have you discovered as a result of your research? Yeah, the the SOS approach to feeding um, was founded by Dr. Kay Toomey, and she is just she's probably the foremost expert um, on picky eating in America. At least, at least I think she's um, she's just amazing. She's been doing this for thirty years. SOS stands for Sequential Oral Sensory um, because because it's about eating and feeding, not about food. So sequential means there's thirty two steps to eating. Julie, is that crazy? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, Dr. Toomey says eating is literally the hardest skill we humans ever have to do. Wow. So when our kids are struggling, we don't realize that they're embarking on this 32-step process. It's one of only two things humans do that use all eight of our senses, including, you know, the lesser known, like proprioceptive and interoceptive and stuff. And um, and it's it's really, really complicated. And so... So through the SOS approach to feeding, yeah, I was able to learn like how complicated it is, um, how how many different sabotages can come at kids that can interrupt, right? Each of those thirty-two steps, or that can interrupt their ability to use their senses to encounter food. Um, one of the things Dr. K. Toomey says she's uh, she used to work on an oncology floor in a hospital, and and now that she's had you know thirty years working with parents of picky eaters she says anecdotally that parents of picky eaters are pretty much nearly as stressed out as parents of pediatric cancer patients. Wow. Right. Because we think, I mean, when kids are not eating well, you know, especially when they're really severe picky eaters, we do think they'll starve and die. Like that's, we have this exact same fear as parents of, of cancer patients. And so it's, um it's a big deal. It's a big concern. And I think what I want parents to hear most is that it's all fixable. Like even the most severe picky eaters can learn to eat and can go through that 32 step process. It just may take a lot longer for them than, than some other kids who don't have some of um, the challenges, you know, that kids who are struggling with, again, it may be the oral within their mouth or the senses or the stress response, Um, there's, again, so many blocks that can get in the way of our kids and food. But if we can remove some of those blocks for them and help them move through the sequence in order, all kids can learn to eat.
0: That's great. And so, you know, how we think about feeding our kids, our perspective about feeding kids in the U.S., do you think that it's doing a disservice to kids?
1: I think we talked a little bit about this on our last podcast, because probably because I get pretty so foxy and pretty, I get pretty excited about this, man. I, I, I do think we are doing kids a disservice because our culture is, is such a promoter of quick, easy, cheap, convenient. Right. And, and I think a lot of parenting strategies, you know, parenting strategies drift the pendulum back and forth over the years, right. Maybe from a little too strict to trying to be friends with our kids, uh, a little too much. And so, you know, when we're stressed, when we're very concerned that our kids are not getting enough food or enough nutrients and, and the culture is making it so easy to choose quick, easy, and convenient, we kind of fall into these habits of feeding them whatever they will accept, which, which ends up being highly processed food. There's not enough variety. There's not enough colors. You know, we, severely lower the bar for what we expect our kids to eat. And that's, then that's what they eat. So I firmly believe that the habits we form in childhood are what build our adult state of ease or dis-ease, right? Meaning disease. you know, someone who gets diabetes at age 50 or age 60, like that didn't happen the year before that's been, uh, you know, decades in in the motion, and I believe I really believe it starts with our kids. Um, and so I've been saying a lot recently that as parents, we have to choose the short-term hard actions so that in the long term we have more ease. It is more easy and less ease, disease, right? If we choose the short easy, ah, we get we end up, you know, causing hard things for our kids in the future. And so for parents, right, we've gotta we've gotta tell ourselves over and over, like feeding our children, isn't about what they eat today or how much they eat at this meal or what foods they eat tomorrow. It's about building a future. It's about thinking long-term it's about building a relationship with food, right. And setting up these habits for nourishment for their life, not about the content of their meal and what goes on the plate in a given day.
0: Yes. So important. So Katie, can kids be incorrectly labeled as picky
1: eaters? They can, they can. And, you know, we kind of talked about that with eating as a different action or different idea than food, right? Where we can say, well, if, if a kid is so stressed out that they've gotten, you know, anxiety induced stomach aches and they're coming to the table, it has nothing to do with the food, but it, they absolutely look like picky eaters. And so two, two other quick examples of many, kids who are constipated. Okay, It's estimated 10% of kids are constipated. I always figure all those estimates are probably low because most people don't really know what's going on in their bodies nowadays. When you're constipated, you feel kind of bloated. You feel kind of full after a few bites, right? When you're not pooping well, you don't want to put things in on the other end. And so what does that look like when they're a kid? The kid cannot articulate what's going on. I, I don't think many adults necessarily can articulate what's going on. They're just, they're in pain right? Yeah. And so when they're in pain and food causes a little bit more pain, they're just going to ignore the food. They're going to push it away. And we see as parents, the external behavior, right? And we judge that and we label it as, oh, they're a picky eater when actually like, they're just constipated. <laughs> they need our help. They need medical attention, you know? And um, another example is uh, Allison's son, Then this is really severe. He was in the hospital at seven months life-threatening allergies on a feeding tube, right? And so anyone that's on a feeding tube is gonna get that label too. They're a picky eater or they're a bad eater. Well, well, he just had allergies. And so again, that's a really severe example. Good news is he's now a vibrant four-year-old. But if we can imagine less severe allergies, right? Any kid who has an undiagnosed allergy and it's causing them some sort of pain or it's causing them some sort of discomfort, kids are a little more intuitive than we expect, I think. And, and they, they kind of understand innately that this food is making them hurt. And so again, they're going to push that food away. Externally looks like picky eating internally are just some questions that we need to explore as parents and really do our detective work.
0: This is so amazing, Katie. I feel like We're just not talking about these issues, right? And this could really change how we feed our kids and and get to the root of picky eating. And so we're going to take a break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about the five, what you call the five P's of picky eating and what those are and why they're really important to know so that parents can get to the bottom of the issues with their kids. We all know that kids love their snacks, but finding healthy snacks with real food ingredients that are also affordable isn't always easy. That's why I love Thrive Market. Thrive Market is an online membership-based market that makes healthy living easy and affordable. Everything is organic and non-GMO, and members save an average of $32 on every order. My kids really love the skinny-dipped dark chocolate almonds and bars, especially coconut cream pie. So delicious. Thrive Market also has essential groceries, safe supplements, non-toxic home products, and clean beauty products, plus ethical meat, sustainable seafood, clean wine, and more. If you join today, you can get 25% off your first order and a free gift. All you have to do is go to thrivemarket.com slash foodissues where you can sign up and see my favorite items. And for every paid membership, they give a free membership to a family in need. So sign up today at thrivemarket.com slash foodissues. So Katie, what are the five P's of picky eating and why do we need to know them?
1: Well, this is something that, that I created because I like mnemonics, right? I'm a third grade teacher. And the five P's of picky eating are palate, pain, processing, pressure, and power. So we've already talked a little bit about the first two. You know, palate is when um, a lot of kids, again, 32-step process of eating. And so that's difficult. And (laughs) Julie, the motions that our tongue needs to make to eat are unlike anything else we do. They're more complicated than creating oral language. So it's unfair to say, hey, my kid doesn't have a speech impediment. They can talk fine. Their tongue's probably fine. Not true because there are motions we make. Um, So just imagine, and anyone can do this, imagine putting like a Cheerio on the tip of your tongue and what do you have to do to get it to your molars? You have to use this, what's called tongue tip lateralization and move that Cheerio sideways and backward, kind of rotating all the way back to your molars. There's no sound in any language in the world where you have to do that. So some kids just can't figure out how to chew well. And there's all sorts of reasons for that. Um, or they have, you know, or they're not good at swallowing. There's so many (laughs) crazy things that can happen in the mouth that again, have nothing to do with food, but everything to do with a child's physiology. We've had some great examples of kids being in pain, right? Number, the second P is pain. Um, And then processing is one that's I think really worth sitting on for a while. Statistically, 15% of kids have some sort of sensory processing difficulties. I, I really think that that is one of those numbers that's gotta be a lot higher is, you know, it's just kids are not being diagnosed. But when we think about how many kids, I mean, are, are struggling with their senses and struggling with, you know, sound or textures, or even, you know, the kids who can't handle the scratchy tags. I I guarantee that that is increasing (laughs) since our childhood in the eighties. And, and because eating is again, one of only two things humans do that use all eight of our senses any sense, any trouble you're having with a sense, whether it's visual texture, um, auditory, it's all going to get in the way and potentially sabotage the kids access or the kids, you know, approaching food with curiosity instead of, instead of fear. Um, and then the last two are pressure and power. And that's kind of where, uh, parenting styles come into play. So we know research shows us parenting styles don't actually cause picky eating. However, if you've got one of those other Ps, palate pain processing going on, the, the way the parent reacts and interacts with the kid can help or hurt the process. So one good example of this is Rochelle, who adopted a daughter and this, this little girl was nine years old. She was sensory sensitive. She was aggressively anxious. You know, poor girl, she's, she's living under a lot of labels and a lot of struggles and that played out at the table. So her daughter would not let foods even touch the same area of the plate. And at first, Rochelle used a parenting strategy her parents had used. She used the three bite rule. You just, you got to take three bites of everything to learn what you like. And at first that worked, but then everything got worse, right? She hit this wall where her daughter, it just turned into a massive power struggle and meltdowns every day. So here, you know, Rochelle had a choice. She could have continued with the broken strategy that was not working. And it, who knows, maybe this adopted daughter may have ended up with like trauma responses to food because of that pressure, but she shifted. She shifted her parenting strategy and she used the non-food centric environmental parenting strategies that I teach at um, Kids Cook Real Food. And this little girl went over time. I mean, it, this is a series of fun. So again, it's the long it's a short, hard for the long, easy, right? Mm-hmm. It's a long process. But but this little nine-year-old went from barely eating supper to saying things like, I'm going to try something new. And my favorite story Rochelle shared is that she served uh, a curry meal, which is, you know, that's big flavors. That's big flavors for a little girl and a little girl who never lets things touch. And so Rochelle knew to deconstruct the food. So the you know, rice noodles were in one bowl and the veggies in another and the sauce in another. And her daughter voluntarily, put a little bit of curry sauce on her noodles, which I know like for parents with typically developing children, that does not sound like much, but yeah, <laughs> you no, got that's a sensory huge. kid, yeah, if you've got a sensory kid, that was like, you know, the light shining and the angels singing. <laughs> was a big deal. Um, and so, you know, she had, this little girl was not a picky eater because of the food. She had these sensory issues. She may have had some early life trauma, right? Before her adoption. Those are her root causes. If Rochelle had used too much pressure and created an imbalance of inappropriate power between the child and the parent, she totally could have made it worse, but she was able to reduce the pressure, right? She gave her daughter appropriate power within boundaries and the little girl's relationship with food improved.
0: That's great. So what are your best tips for parents who think that there is something like this going on with their kid to figure out, you know, to confirm that something is
1: happening and where can they go to get help? Yeah. I mean, so I, I'm coming from a behavioral standpoint as a teacher. And so what I teach can help every child take steps to getting better, setting up the environment, you know, having the proper balance of power and pressure. Um, but some kids can get to a great relationship with food, with just routines and language. Um, kids who are really struggling with some of this physiological stuff, true problem feeders probably need occupational therapy or feeding therapy, And it's, it's gotta be said that some feeding therapy is really, really hurtful. It, it actually hurts more than it helps. So I want to encourage parents to just trust your intuition. Um, If it doesn't feel right, it probably isn't. So it's um, sooner is, is better. The earlier you can get a child who's a problem feeder into feeding therapy, the better. Um, And just really quickly to define what a problem feeder is, this is, This is a very extreme picky eater. And I I kind of put that in air quotes because I don't love the term picky eater, but a true problem feeder eats less than 20 foods week in and week out. Um, They cut whole food. They cut whole categories of food out. You know, they don't eat any fruit or any meat, for example. um, And they tend to continue to drop foods. So maybe they had you know exactly twenty foods they ate, and then all of a sudden they drop one, and they have nineteen, and then they drop another, and they have eighteen, and and you can see why parents' worry would increase in this situation. And um, problem feeders completely fall apart when presented with new foods. There is like absolutely no way that they're ever going to try a new food in you know in a normal situation, and uh, and it really interrupts family life. They're they're unable unable to go out in social situations. Are it's really difficult to travel, and so that's again that is like the far end of the spectrum. I believe 6% of picky eaters are problem feeders. So it's a small, it's a small subset. Um, But then there's a lot of other kids, again, who are struggling with their relationship with food who still would need to, we need to eradicate the physiological root cause before we can completely fix the picky eating.
0: Excellent. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So regardless of whatever is going on with your kid, what are the best tips for getting your kids to eat better?
1: Yeah, so like I said, every every child will thrive, will take steps in the right direction if we set up the right environment. So what I, what I call the simple three-step process is prepare the space, lead with your ace, and keep a poker face. And preparing the space is just setting boundaries around meals and snacks. I tell parents that your snacks need to be at least 90 minutes, if not two hours, away from meals on either side because we've got to have our kids coming to the table with an appetite. Right. There's no way they're going to eat a great dinner if they're full. <laughs> and so I think we're, we're kind of over snackers here in North America. And so dialing in the snack time is really important. Keeping the snacks to a, a reasonable, smaller portion. I always tell my kids uh, snacks are meant to satisfy, not to fill you up. Right. And I mm-hmm. think that's satisfying is, or satiating is a good word to teach kids. Then when they have this appetite, step two is to lead with your ace And that just means that, you know, the first bites of food taste the best. So what should we put out first? Well, it's whatever you most want your kids to eat for lots of people. That's vegetables. Some people, if their kids struggle with protein, they'll put out the protein first. And what's really key to this is step three, and that's keeping your poker face. And that's that that P of pressure, right? When we put pressure on kids, including positive pressure, like, ooh, look, (laughs) (laughs) Don't you want to eat it like that's pressure too. even though we think we're being all happy and positive and uh, Mary told a story of her son. He walks in the door every day no matter what's cooking and says what stinks (laughs) and unfortunately for a long time Mary took the bait like she let him push her buttons because it's hard parenting is hard no judgment there and so I challenged her to keep her poker face and so she thought okay okay Mary. Zip the lips. Turn around. Don't let him see you. And she just had um, some roasted broccoli out. And he approached the broccoli, and he ate a first helping, and he ate a second helping of all the stinky broccoli purely because of Mary's poker face. So really, really important how we interact with our kids.
0: And when you say lead with your ace, do you? How does that work in a tactical way? Do you literally
1: put chicken on the table, and then once they've eaten it, then you bring out the broccoli? Sometimes, yeah. If if the child's struggling with protein, um, I there's two ways that I recommend leading with the ace. One is sort of the appetizer tray, where you where you put something out, and maybe you're finishing up in the kitchen, and the kids are allowed to graze a little bit on an appetizer. And the other is to serve the meal in courses. Okay. So we might have. Um, I'm I'm a big fan of a blended soup because picky eaters can't pick anything out, <laughs> and you can serve it with a straw, which is one of those tactics we talked about at the beginning. But Hey, if it's new and novel and it gets blended vegetable soup into your kids, totally worth it. But the trick is to serve that as a first course, like a fancy restaurant where there's no other options on the table. And then you bring out the second course. And so again, with protein, that's a a little bit of a tricky one because yeah, parents are like, really? Like I should just put the barbecue chicken out with nothing else? Maybe, or maybe it's the chicken and the vegetables because you're okay with either of those going in first. For most kids, what they're drawn to, you know, if you serve the whole meal first, they're going to grab the roll, the bread, the starchy carbs. And so a lot of people who know that, who are seeing that their kids are quick, quite quickly filling up on those starchy carbs, they're going to at least hold that out for the second or third course.
0: I love the appetizer idea. It has been so effective with my own children because it sounds special, right? And it's fancy and it's not dinner, and and it also gives them choices, and they love to pick and nosh, right? So <laughs> mm-hmm. it is so effective. And so, what are some ways that we can also instill a healthy relationship with food? Because, like you said, it it's really not about the food, and and we are, I mean, as a as a as a nation, right? Many of us are emotional eaters. There's food addiction. There's just an overall unhealthy relationship with food in this country, and.
1: We have to model, of course, which is, which is always the answer. And it's like, oh, that's so hard. I have to do it right for my kids to do it right? Well, yeah, <laughs> we do, we do. Um, so we wanna be really cautious about not setting up systems in our family that will encourage emotional eating, right? And so um, pressure to eat is a big no-no. Food rewards are a big no-no because that, does, that teaches kids to turn to food in times where they're feeling low, right? Because if food has been used as a reward, that can help you feel better. Uh, we definitely don't want to restrict entire foods or entire food groups, which sounds a bit counterintuitive I'm caveat, unless there's allergies or sensitivities, but if we completely restrict that tends to dial up the child's desire for that food. And again, can kind of set up for food addiction or emotional eating, um, we what what i recommend most of all is letting kids build a relationship with food away from the table where there isn't any pressure to eat right because eating eating is different than food and emotional eating and food addiction really again that's a great example of how it doesn't it's not really about the food it's about the feelings and so if we can remove kids from having to eat or any potential pressure to eat we get them involved in the kitchen And it's just an activity, right? And it's a productive activity. It's not necessarily, it doesn't have to be a craft with the food. It can just be making dinner. Uh, One of our members, Melissa Weyer, said she was over the moon the first time her son ate salad last year. And the story was they did a kids cook real food class. They made homemade gelatin for dessert. They went out in the garden, they picked green beans and they made their own salads, And so Melissa wrote to me, like she, she just could not even help like sharing these pictures. She was like, Katie, I can hardly believe it. We all sat down to dinner. We ate chicken and beans and salad happily
0: Wonderful because
1: we're so used to, we're so used to those power struggles at the table. And so it's, uh, it's, it's not a one sentence prescription to say here, here here's the easy answer and how you avoid emotional eating and food addiction. But it's, I believe it's just over 18 years, a gradual release of responsibility helping our kids taking ownership, right. Of their eating choices and their health and uh, allowing them to experiment a little bit, maybe allowing them to have too much sugar one time and without judgment, having a conversation about how that made them feel. Right. And so it's definitely an 18 year process with a long goal in mind.
0: Absolutely. And so circling back here, right. We talked about how it's really not about the food, but Can new recipes, meal
1: ideas, fun ways to present food, can they help encourage your kids to eat healthy? They really can. I'm not gonna throw those out the window. They're just not step one, right? So, like especially when kids are involved in the kitchen, making food art or trying new recipes can expose kids to so much of a wider variety, which we know is both good for our nourishment, our gut bacteria, and just it's it's true that the wider variety a child eats the more food they will eat. Think of a buffet, right? You don't go to a buffet thinking, I'm going to overeat. And then there's 27 choices and you look at your plate and you go, oh my goodness, why do I have so much food on my plate? And so that's, that's not a great thing for adults at a buffet, but it's a really good thing for kids who are under eating, you know, who are really selective and are undernourished. The more we can expand their variety, the more we're going to expand. Their quantity, you know, they get all these different textures, these different visuals. And so, anything, anytime that we can expose kids to food, it's absolutely, it it can absolutely help. Um, Some, I'm running a picky eating challenge actually right now, which I do twice a year. And some of the moms have been sharing about themselves as kids. That's where I start. I say, we got to look back to move forward. And they've said, you know, I didn't like vegetables, but I think it's because my mom only served them out of a can. And when I became an adult, there was this whole new world of roasted vegetables and steamed and seasonings. And, you know, so absolutely the way food is presented can make a huge difference. But I just see all of those strategies or tactics as kind of the sprinkles on the cake or the feta cheese on the salad, right? We've got to have the base foundation of the environment you create, the routines you set up and, and the vocabulary you use. Once you have that, Heck yeah, look for all the fun recipes and you know, try different things until you find what works for your kids. Awesome. Katie, today has been amazing. This is such helpful information. And so for listeners
0: who want to go deeper and learn more about these issues, they can listen to your TED Talk, which I'll link to in the show notes, but also tell listeners where they can go to learn more about you and Kids Cook Real Food.
1: Yeah, at kidscookrealfood.com, we always have some sort of free gift um, on the homepage, and if you're specifically interested in in picky eating, I do run at least twice a year this No More Picky Eating Challenge, which is a free thing, and you can hop on the wait list there as well. And then if if real life is your jam, that's on Instagram, where you kind of get to see what my kids are cooking, what they're eating, and uh, what we're what we are learning from failure in the kitchen.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so
1: much, Katie, for your time.
0: Thank you. I always love chatting with Katie Kimball, and I hope you walked away feeling more informed and empowered to help your child. Definitely check out her Kids Cook Real Food e which I've linked to in the show notes. If you're enjoying food issues, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review and a rating so we can reach more people. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode, and I'll see you next week.